Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Do take up your Bibles again and turn back to Ephesians chapter 6. As we begin, we we all love a a good story, don't we? Whether it's an ancient classic, I don't know, like Troy and the Wooden Horse or something, or or a recent quality uh, film, stories that they get inside us, uh, they grow in our minds, they they touch our imaginations. But, But stories aren't just fun or heartwarming. They actually help us to live. We like, we need big overarching stories to help us, to help us make decisions of life, to help us in the big decisions, the small decisions. Like the big story that that people are on the march forward, the story of evolution, the story of progress. You know, we will always get better. Now that's, that's a big story. That the, the, the world tells, that gives us hope perhaps, that gives us, helps us face big problems like COVID or something. But it also gives us a, a, a focus on the small scale. You know, if we will progress, it means there must be something fundamentally good about us. And, and, and so parents, let your children trust their instincts or, or adults back yourself because you, you are fundamentally good. The, the big story impacts how we live on the little scale. Uh, that, that story might be one of, of progress, but it could be the opposite, that the world is, a, is against us. That's the big story, so we must fight for me, for number one, you know, employers, they work their teams dry to protect themselves and them alone. Whether we know it or not, uh, we're all living by a story of some sort. But God wants us to live by the story that's true that's real, that matches the way he's made the world to be. Because if the the big story is true and right, then how we live on the small scale will bring goodness and hope and peace, things we all long for. Now, last week we saw uh, that in in marriage relationships with the big story of Christ and the church. Uh, And today we're going to see it in parent-child relationships and also at slave-master relationships. Um, those slave-master relationships we'll see have similarities to those perhaps in the workplace. That the great story of the gospel shapes our day-to-day relationships. Now we all have very different experiences of those relationships, of being a child, of a parent, of uh, being at work. We don't live in a simple world. Sin has stretched its, its deathly tentacles into all areas of life. But even in the pain and frustrations, God's way is good. And his grace is greater than both our failings and the failings of those who have hurt us. So first of all, we're going to dwell on the gospel story and, and see how that links to these relationships. And then we'll get into the specific instructions. And first of all, I just want us to see that the gospel shows us we are all under authority we're all under authority. It's really to remember, uh, important to remember that these instructions uh, come in chapter 6 of Ephesians, not in chapter 1. Okay, A whole book 
has come before. And if the big story impacts our small lives, we've got to start with the big. We've got to frame our lives first and foremost in relation to God. So first, we've got to remember the goal. Back in 1 verse 10, the whole world is heading towards unity under Christ. That's the big goal of it all. God has created his world and he's bringing it back together under Jesus. Uh, 1 verse 22 says, all things are under Christ's feet. And chapter 2 reminded us of our sin, our need for, for God's grace found in Christ. So he saves us by Jesus Christ. He unites us to Jesus Christ his son. And that means we are brought into God's family. Remember chapter 5 verse 1 said, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So there's a unity. Whether we're, we're children or parents, if we're working, we're unemployed, we are all part of one family, one body. So big story, God, he's fixing his world in Jesus. That means people are saved into his family through Jesus. And that means we are all people under authority. The relationships we're about to look at are authority, obedience, relationships. But we've got to start here. As God's people, we're all under authority. We're all under God as our Father We're all under Jesus Christ, our head, our king. None of us are free agents. None of us are in charge. God is. Just notice how that runs through our passage. What are fathers to do? Verse 4, bring up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instruction of the Lord. Parents, no less than their children, are under authority. They have a set teaching that they must give. It's not up to them. They do what God wants them to do. Then verse 6, when Paul is talking to slaves, how does he describe them? Uh, As servants or slaves of Christ, doing the will of God. Fundamental for them is this truth. We're all slaves of Christ. Paul says it again, this time for the masters, verse 9. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. He's the master over both. We are all people under authority, willingly submitting ourselves to the will of our heavenly father and to his king, Jesus Christ. He's our master and we obey him. Our allegiance has changed. We're not slaves to the world anymore. We're not slaves to false gods, to sin, to its desires. No, we're free slaves of Jesus Christ. This is important because it means authority and obedience, they're not dirty words. I know our society hates them. We're highly suspicious of power, and sometimes rightly, but they're also gospel words. God saved us from obeying a horrific, death-bringing master to serving a new, life-giving one. It's a big story in God's grace. He's made us, he's redeemed us, he's brought us back into his family by his grace in Christ, and he's put us under his Good and loving authority to serve and live for him. That's the big story. We're all under authority. And that shapes our relationships. It shapes our relationships. Firstly, it does that by giving us a model. We'll see this is especially true of children and parents. It's, it's a relationship of authority and obedience. So just as we're children of our, our heavenly father in obedience, so children and parents are to copy it. 
We're to kind of be a scale model of the real thing, you know, like making a smaller version, I don't know, say, of the Eiffel Tower uh, with all its amazing steel, steel beams, different levels, grand beauty. That's the real, and our model is to look as much like it as possible. And that means as we do, we're going to reveal something true about the gospel. As parents and children live rightly as slaves and masters live rightly, something true about God and his people will shine out to the world. And not only to those around us, but also to ourselves, as we act like God rightly or act like his servant, we'll see how wonderfully gracious he is. So the big story of the gospel, it shapes us as it gives us a model. It also shapes us as it gives us a motive. We especially see this in slaves and masters. If the gospel sinks in deeply, then we're no longer only defined by our earthly relationships. But instead, we're defined by something more fundamental. We're servants of Christ before anything else. We're we're children of our heavenly Father first. And that means we have a heavenly Father to please. What a joy we have. A good heavenly Lord to obey. What a privilege. We love to live for them because we're loved by them. And that gives us great motive in perhaps very difficult, very challenging relationships. It takes our eyes off perhaps our difficult child or mother or boss or employee and, and lifts them to God. It gives us a motive to live good lives. The gospel shapes our relationships. We're all under authority. It gives us a motive and a model. Well, let's get stuck into the detail of what this looks like. We'll take children, uh, then parents, uh, and then work a relationship. So firstly with children, it looks like humble honor. Humble honor. This is just um, verses 1 and 2 and 3. Now, I've already spoken briefly to the children uh, about obedience. Um, and, and those of you still living under your parents' roof, uh, for all of us here. But, it, but it's worth saying uh, to us all, as we grow up, Of course, obedience starts to look different as we become adults, accountable for our own homes. But honor still remains, doesn't it? That commandment doesn't change. Do you still honor your parents, your parents-in-law? And some cultures, elders are, are honored with body language, bowing, kneeling before older men and women. Now, that's a cultural expression, But it's a beautiful picture of where our hearts should be, isn't it? Lowering ourselves before those who've come before us, who've lived lives of hardship and persevered, who've gained wisdom. How does our honor of our heavenly father get shown in our our honor of of our parents and our elders? Because as, as Paul says, this is right. This is the way God has structured his world. Children to obey and honor your parents. How do you speak to them, to others, with respect or dismissive? How do you bear with them in their weakness, their sin, perhaps their growing frailty? How do you pray for them? I know I can be so quick to think, I know better, mum and dad. I don't need to listen to you, rather than humbly listening. You know, when did you even last speak to your parents? Doing so acknowledges God's design of families. There is wisdom here. As we we honor so it on the whole, it brings goodness. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land. As we honor our Father in heaven, 
with humility. May we continue to do so to our earthly parents. Humble honor. What about parents to children? Here it's integrity and instruction. Integrity and instruction. Verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, it's pretty noticeable, that the strange beginning. Why fathers? He's just been referring to parents and to honoring your father and mother. Why now just fathers? Well, it's because of what came earlier in the passage. If you remember in talking to husbands and wives that we saw last week, we see husbands are responsible for things. They're put there as the head uh, by Christ. They're, they're, they're to imitate Christ in his love, service of his wife, and here to imitate God in his role of training and instructing his children. Fathers, hear this. We are responsible for our children. We mustn't be absent. Now, work commitments can put pressure on things. Also, I, I wonder if not having the early years of, of nurturing can make us feel distant. You know, since I'm not close like their mother, I may well just leave it to her. Uh, and we abdicate responsibility. As I earn the money, she does the parenting. But absolutely not. We must get stuck in. We live in a world where more 15-year-olds have a mobile phone than a dad at home. Be present with your kids. We must take responsibility. But mothers, just because uh, this instruction uh, is directed at fathers doesn't mean you're not part of this. Of course not. Uh, We're all hearing what matters to God. You're hearing what your husband is held accountable for. So as a team, work towards it. Be united, pulling in the same direction. Much instruction is given on your knee. There are many moments of discipline at your hands. Now, some of you I know are parenting uh, alone with one spouse or another not playing a role. And if perhaps if this is your husband, then despite his failing, keep pressing ahead with what is good uh, for your children, following the perfect example of your heavenly father. And as, as we get into this, I know I've only been a father for eight years. I know I have so much to learn, as you'll see in a moment. Uh, But let's listen to God's words together that we may all grow uh, in love and wisdom, whether we're a parent yet or not. Because firstly, our parenting is to be marked with integrity. Do not provoke your children to anger. Do not provoke your children to anger. Another translation puts it like this. Do not exasperate your children. Now, we might anger them when we're doing right, when we're disciplining them rightly or restricting something for their good, but that's not what this is about. This is about when our lives don't match up with our spiritual values, with what we know to be true, with what we demand from our children. And when that doesn't match up, not surprisingly, we anger them. We, we want something for them when we aren't doing it in our, our, ourselves. In other words, we lack integrity like we want them to put themselves second, sacrificing to them, uh, to others, but for my benefit, my comfort, my good. When we want them to be successful so I can feel good about myself. When we treat them as a nuisance rather than as an image bearer of God. When we expect them to treat us like adults while we refuse to be gentle and treat them like children or teenagers. And as we do this, we provoke them to anger. Just... Just this week, just as I started to prepare this sermon, one of my children was being unkind to another. 
and I provoked them to anger. I raised my voice in a completely disproportionate way. Yes, they'd done wrong, but my response wasn't fair. It wasn't helpful. It didn't shine through with grace, appreciation of the situation. I didn't treat that child with dignity when I was calling them to treat their sibling with dignity. Instead, I escalated the whole situation. I provoked anger, and we had a tough, a tough morning before school. I lacked integrity. So what do we do? We come back to the gospel. We see our lives before our patient, loving, heavenly Father who treats us with dignity, with care. We come to him for forgiveness. We, we pray our lives will become more and more kind and sensitive to our children. That we're quick to say sorry, quick to forgive. We need a child, a sensitive integrity. But not just that, also instruction. It's integrity and instruction, verse 4. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We live in a society that's all about the child. It's child-led, child-centered. It's pervasive in our schools and parenting advice. We're, we're taught a child doesn't need teaching. They need facilitating. Uh, the child doesn't need discipline, but just needs to be shown the right choices, and they'll go the right way. But that's not God's view. Children are moral agents. They are sinful, just like you and me. It's inherent. It's in them from birth. And so, like us, under God's authority, children are under parental authority. If you're a parent, under Christ, of course, you are in charge. We have to be child-sensitive, yes. Definitely compassionate, gracious. But that does not mean child-led. God is showing us children need direction. They need to be shown the wise and good way to live in his world, just like we do. They need steering towards loving him, trusting Jesus and loving their neighbor. Now, I know this will change as, as the children's age change and they get through different stages and become teenagers, but the principle still uh, remains here. Perhaps think of it like part of it is like training, like being a, a senior coach on a sp sports field, directing, encouraging, showing them the best way, pointing them to wisdom, goodness, and truth, pointing them to God's promises, as Paul does here. In a sense, it's a little like a carrot to a donkey, perhaps. But other times, it's firmer than that. The word here is discipline, discipline and correction, giving clear boundaries, clear consequences. Perhaps more like the stick to the donkey. But we help them pick the straight and good and right path positively, yes, by encouraging them with how good it is, but also by discipline as they choose the wrong path, just like our Father in heaven who disciplines and instructs us. Discipline given in love for their good and benefit, calmly and clearly, we, we pray, we'll slowly teach them to focus on what is right and to reject what isn't. It's part of our instruction. Now, this isn't just about, you know, modifying their behavior on the surface. We could just do that with over-the-top fear and ridiculous bribes, couldn't we? But no, we want them to, to want and to love what is good. So as one author has put it, we try to shepherd their hearts. How? Well, as God instructs us through discipline and instruction. Perhaps think of it like feeding your children. We're, we're giving them what they need to be healthy, training and instruction, discipline, like their fruit and veg, their protein and carbs. But notice the emphasis. This is training and instruction of the Lord. As Christian parents, we have a, a real gift to our children. 
It's not just wisdom from our parents. It's not just some good advice from the internet. It's instruction from the Lord, of the Lord, about the Lord. It's his wisdom. It's his view of the world. It's his understanding of who we are. His words of grace and love. It's the gospel. It's food from the Michelin-starred chef. We will always teach our children something with our, our words and our lives. Or let it be the instruction of the Lord's. What a privilege we have to feed them with God's word. We can, we can read the Bible with them just during the week. If, if that's perhaps not a habit, give it a go. Just once or twice a week start with. It doesn't need to be long. Read a bit of a gospel and lead them in prayer. Five minutes perhaps at a meal time. We also want to make church a priority. Now, some uh, Christian camps I used to help at, there was a phrase that was used in, in the leaders' room to help us, and it was this. It was, leaders set the tone. Uh, set the tone. And if it was true of camp, uh, how much more at home? You know, our children will pick up on what matters to us and what's important to us. If, if church is a non-negotiable to us, it'll become one for them. If we love to read our Bibles, they'll think it's normal for them to do so too. We set the tone. Kids will pick up on what you enjoy and what you don't, what matters to you and what doesn't. Integrity and instruction. And as we can see, this is parents' responsibility. We don't delegate it out and just say, you just get on with it over there. Sunday school team, truth group, you do it all for me. You get on with it. Uh, Schools, you do it for me. No, we are responsible. But it does take a church family to bring up children, doesn't it? We're all involved. We're all role models. As we share lives together, they will watch all of us. So let's help and encourage parents in their tasks. We give great thanks for us as a church family, for our creche, for our Sunday school team, our truth leaders. Parents, step into a role of authority, a role like our Heavenly Father, and they seek to model Him, to live with integrity, caring for their children with instruction, loving them as beloved children. So that's parents and children. But then we move on to a very different set of relationships, slave and master. And here the relationship, shaped by the gospel, becomes one of sincere service. Sincere service. Now we'll take both sides of this relationship kind of together because that's what Paul does. In verse 9, he tells the masters, do the same to them. In other words, there's something common between the two. Now, now, as we read this, we're entering into a different world. It's an alien world to us. We're entering first century Roman world of slavery. Human beings being bought for a price to work for a master. Now, it's important to say it's not the same as chattel slavery a thousand years later. You know, that went to a much a deeper level of racist depravity. Instead, the slaves in Roman times could, could be given responsibility and education and treated well. But it's also not the same as working for someone now either. Okay? That these slaves, they were properties of their master. They were not there willingly. They had very few rights. Trying to escape could lead to death. Now, a question that may be on our minds is, why didn't Paul here just say to masters, just abolish it? Now, we don't know for for sure, but there are definitely clues. It's important to notice Paul's first concern is actually something deeper than abolition of slavery. He is concerned for Jesus Christ to be exalted 
whatever the situation. He's not saying it's good or bad in that. He wants uh, Christ to be exalted whatever the situation. He wants to get to our hearts before anything else. So whether you're enslaved or set free, you can still exalt Christ, even, even in serious suffering. And what a word that has been for many slaves over thousands of years. The praise and worship of Christ found in places of slavery is amazing. Just think of the spirituals pouring out of enslaved black um, Americans. But even with that said, Paul is still sowing the seeds of the downfall of slavery. He speaks of slaves with dignity and respect. In another letter, when he writes uh, to, uh, to Philemon, he speaks of Onesimus, a slave, and he, he talks of him as a brother, as an equal to him. And here in Ephesians, he's calling masters to treat slaves not as property, but as people, people under God, just like them. And so not surprisingly, wherever Christianity has taken root in society, so slavery is slowly unwound, even without a direct command from Paul here. But what we must notice here is this, even, even in the extreme and the potentially severe situation of a master and slave, even here, the gospel breaks in. Even in this kind of suffering, being owned by another human being, treated poorly with no rights or prospects, even in that, the gospel can shape us and help us. Because the gospel calls us to relocate ourselves. It calls us to relocate ourselves from, from just being under a human master, but instead being under our gracious master, Jesus Christ. Everything is before him. Verse 5, they are to obey as they would Christ. Verse 6, they are to work as servants of Christ. Verse 7, they are to offer service indeed to Christ. Verse 8, they are to know whatever reward their earthly master gives, Christ will also reward them. This, This is a transformation that the slave and master in their relationship are no longer isolated, just living towards each other. Instead, they are first and foremost towards their heavenly master. Vertical comes first. That means as a slave, he no longer works, verse 6, just as a people pleaser. In other words, he doesn't just do enough to keep his master off his back. He doesn't just do what his master wants. Actually, he works to Jesus. He lives to exalt Jesus. It's sincere service. He's obedient. He's conscientious. And similarly, the master, he doesn't treat the slave however he wants. He treats him knowing he is a servant of Christ. The vertical first and then the horizontal. Now, if this is true for a, a, a master-slave relationship in this dark situation, how much more could it be true in our work environments, in our places where we are under authority? If the gospel can break into that, surely it can transform our work where we have choice and freedoms and, and dignity. You know, just imagine you're working at McDonald's and the Lord asks you for 10 I don't know, bacon double cheeseburgers with fries for your customers. You'd want them to be the best burgers you've ever made in your life. Or imagine it was the the Lord looking over your shoulder as you do your final ward round to ungrateful patients at the end of your shift. Or perhaps as you completed your accounting spreadsheet for your boss, you completed it knowing the Lord was scanning his eyes over it. Everything we do is to him, for him, rewarded by him. 
It impacts our energy at work, our quality of work. It, it deepens perhaps our respect for our bosses, the dignity we give them, the way we speak about them in the common room over a coffee. As we serve Christ, so we serve our earthly masters with obedience and sincerity. It's sincere service. And if the gospel can transform masters with slaves, masters are those who treat who they treat as property, surely it can transform us as employers, as bosses. Do the same as they do to you. Treat your employees, if you have them, with dignity, respect, doing good to them. Are you a boss who needs to hear the words, stop your threatening? Are you a boss who needs to be reminded not to show partiality, not to treat your favorite colleagues with favor and kindness and and others with a sharp tongue and sarcasm. As you have received grace and patience and kindness from our, your heavenly Father and Master, so let it shape how you do the same for those who work for you. Your power is a gift, is a gift to serve with. Just as the slave works with sincere service, so should the Master. So, two gospel-shaped relationships. Children, humble honor, parents, integrity and instruction, slaves and masters, sincere service. And as we inhabit the gospel stories, we let that story of Christ's lordship shape our relationships. We start to see and experience his grace. As we receive forgiveness from our mother when we mess something up, let that point to our heavenly father whose patience goes even further. As you try to patiently discipline your child, be thankful and humble before God's discipline of your heart. As you, you take another tongue lashing from your boss, know he is not your eternal master. You serve willingly a gracious and kind boss who speaks words of love and truth over you, who knows and sees and loves. We're all under authority, but under one who promises good and blessing especially when he returns. From Paul's words, we know that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. What a good Lord and master we serve. Amen.